So, Fred, uh, you're the first CEO I've ever interviewed uh, that has run for public office twice, has more than 120 issued patents, and played in a band that opened for The Doors. Um, I thought successful people had to have laser-like focus in all the things they, uh, they did, but um, I take it you don't subscribe to that theory. Well, uh, you know, I, I don't know that I subscribe to any theory. You missed a couple of things. I also played with the Beach Boys, and I was also a Special Forces uh, Green Beret officer and a master parachutist. And, you know, it, you know, the soup doesn't taste quite as well unless you put all that stuff in there. Right. <laughs> and I've heard you say that your energy is sort of, sort of ADD, but I, I think there's more than that. How would you, how would you attribute curiosity to your success, or, or would you put that as one of the character traits that you have? You no, know, I, I think as, as I look back, I think the curiosity is a very important thing. I think the other thing uh, that has really driven my behavior is, you know, something my dad taught me. And, and you know, he gave me a couple of simple things to live by. He said, son, I can't give you any money. I can give you a couple of words of advice. You know, he said, find something you love and pursue it and build something and sell it. And then finally he said, you know, if you have one way to differentiate your product, you can make uh, a living. If you have two, then you're going to have some of the finer things um, in life. And three, if you have three differentiating uh, aspects to your products, you're going to rule the world. Mm-hmm. I haven't found too many of those threes, but I found a couple of those ones and twos. Yeah. Uh, I think those. Are, I, I think what drives it is just looking how you know people are doing things. Um, yeah, just to give you an example, Brian. Recently, we we, we have a product, a, a new product we're going to introduce. And our competitors all have in the glass vial. Well, you know, as we talk to physicians, if they drop it, it shatters on the floor. Mm-hmm. Well, we have it in a syringe made out of polycarbonate with a special coating in which you don't have um, silicone. And so it's easier to use. They don't have to undo it. They don't have to mix it. And it's the same product as everybody else uses. It's just how we deliver the product. So those kind of things, those little ideas of how you make something better, and more convenient for a user and solve their problems is, I think, ultimately the key to success in any business. Right. And, and it seems like also listening to the people that you're trying to do business with is a, is a critical aspect as well. Yeah. And that's a hard one for me because I like to talk so much. So <laughs> uh, I've always had to practice on the listening part. <laughs> so as you said, you were a master parachutist, and I read it helped you learn to control your fear. I'm wondering how that helped you as CEO and co-founder at Merit. Maybe you can give me some examples yeah. if you have them. Well, as, yeah, you know, as part of that, um, you know, I was in the military for all those years, for about 10 years. And, and, and then, I, you know, with, uh, with the jumping out of airplanes, when I left the military, I was absolutely terrified of flying. Really? Um, I was on an airplane yesterday, um, um, and I'll give a little plug for Delta Airlines because uh, it's one of their hubs here. I got over seven million miles flying. Holy cow! Um, but I was ter- but I was terrified, and I overcome that and overcame that by becoming a pilot. Hmm. So uh, the only thing I could do, um, interestingly enough, my son uh, Justin um, is also a high performance jet pilot. So um, you know, I just tried to face it the best I could. Had, had I not done that. Um, you know, Merritt wouldn't have the global business it has today, and certainly um, it, uh, it was helpful for me to, to kind of face it head on. I mean, were there moments when you were starting Merritt where fear was a real, um, I mean, imagine that, you know, fear of losing, you know, your 
your money, fear of embarrassment, all those things kind of seep in. I mean, I founded my company as well, and I know certainly fear was a major factor in the early days, and, and sort of beating that started to lead to some success. I wonder if it was the same for you and from a business perspective. Yeah, no, you know, Brian, I, I don't think I ever did have that fear, except when I borrowed money from my mother to make the payroll. That's where the fear came in. Because <laughs> she said, you know, you got to pay it back. And, uh, and of course we did, but you know, I've never, um, I never really thought of that. I never really was fearful. I think, again, that goes back to the military experience. Um, I guess we're all scared about lots of things all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but controlling that fear, um, and, um, and pressing forward is, is I think a differentiating factor to any human being, uh, certainly wasn't the military. Um, you know, you didn't have time to panic under fire. You had to do your job. I think it's the same in the business world. You, you just, I, I would say maybe I have concerns, but I don't know that I've ever had any fear. Hmm. Well put. Can you take me back to those days in 1987 when you were, I believe you were a, a stockbroker, a real estate developer, and you you, you started uh, to see the opportunity in med tech? Yeah, it actually goes back about seven years before that. I was exactly that, a stockbroker. Um, and then I did some development um, and uh, some very successful products, but it was kind of boring. Mm. And uh, one day um, someone said, well, I, I think this company down in Lehigh, Utah, could use someone like you. And uh, I went down to look at it, and uh, the next day I was running the company. Uh, it was called Utah Medical. I think of the testament of the work that we did there is that company is still publicly held today um, and still um, uh, still business. So. I fell in love with the device business, and I think that was a product of being a stockbroker and trying to find stocks, um, and I tried to specialize in medical device stocks. So back in those days, there were companies like Cobe and Medex and these other companies, mm-hmm. and those were the companies, the smaller companies that were publicly held, Electrocatheter. There were some of these companies, and I followed those. And so taking and, and seeing the opportunities, um, the demographic opportunities, the international opportunities, Taking the advice my dad gave me, um, I, uh, I I jumped in, and I'll never forget when I went home that night. Um, I told my wife I had a new job, and of course the first thing she said is, "Well, um, like all good wives would say, well, how much money are you going to make?" Right. And I had to then announce that I was not going to make any money. <laughs> and uh, that was that was probably the, again those are the, I only fear a couple of people uh, on the earth. I fear no man. Right. I fear my mother and my wife. Other than that. Um, I don't fear anybody. <laughs> well, you're obviously an intelligent man then. And tell me what, I mean, what did you find, besides the, the demographics, and, and I think that, that makes everybody's interest peak uh, about med tech because when you look out and you see a, a predominance of aging population uh, and, and you sort of start extrapolating the numbers, uh, but what, I mean, what else about med tech beyond sort of the fact that it seemed like a, fairly recession-proof business. And, and those were factors, uh, you know, issues like growth and recession-proof and, you know, kind of contrary and almost to the business cycle. But there were a couple of other key issues, and, and I think it re- really was a product of the times. And that was is that um, a PTCA was really just starting to develop at the time. Uh, and so you had this great opportunity of, moving away from uh, cardiac surgery into these less invasive procedures. So that was, I think, a, a, a big issue. And the other one 
is, is you had this whole issue of HIV and bloodborne pathogens, the, the issues of safety. Again, I, I talked about one of them, you know, glass. But mm -hmm. there were glass syringes at the time. Right. And those glass syringes would break. They would cut doctors' hands. They would drop on the floor. And then they had to be re-sterilized. So there, um, there were a lot of safety products that needed to be brought to the market. There was this huge change in medicine uh, uh, in terms of invasive to less invasive. And we were right there at kind of the beginning. Um, and then the opportunities just unfolded from there. Right. Uh, and your first product, that was uh, the safety syringe, correct? Yeah, you know, it was a, it was a simple syringe. Um, and uh, the interesting thing about that syringe is that I remember talking to an investor, and the investor said to me, uh, you're going to get in the syringe business, you've got to be out of your mind. Yeah. You're going to compete against the likes of Beck and Dickinson and these large companies. You're crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and we were crazy, and we were so crazy we built a half a billion dollar business, and we sell you know, close to 25 million syringes a year now. They're unique, though, and that, I think that's the key issue. They weren't your standard hypodermic, standard 10, 20 ml type of Beckton Dickinson syringe. They were, you know, they were um, vacuum syringes. They were inflation uh, um, uh, uh, syringes. They were these specialty syringes um, that commanded, um, you know, uh, good prices and had large opportunities. So, it's uh, kind of a two-part question here. How, I mean, when you're going up against a, a, a behemoth like uh, BD, uh, how do you begin to attack that business? And well, let's start there. How, do, how did you well, begin to attack it's that a, it's business? A, it's, a, it's, it's a good question, and thank you. Well, it's like any market. You have an SUV market in the automotive area, and then you have um, a little um, uh, Aero or a um, uh, Cooper Mini. Mm -hmm. um, different market with Beckton Dickinson was the kind of a, a great company, but they were they were kind of your standard in the use laboratory given injection type of company. Whereas the syringes that we built were made out of polycarbonate, uh, which is a a clear, strong um, um, uh, material um, versus polypropylene that's kind of cloudy and 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 has minimal strength. So this is something a doctor could hold in his hand and. The interesting thing today is to talk about this. It, it doesn't seem like a big deal today, but you have to remember that back in 1987, no one had ever done this before. They would take a propylene syringe, and then they would kind of fit it by putting plastic parts around it. Merrick made a single polycarbonate, clear, felt like glass, acted like glass, but without the risk of glass that was disposable. And so it was kind of, you know, like many people when they were assessing risk, there was absolutely no risk at all. It was like, why hadn't somebody thought about this before? We never really thought about the risk. of, And, and very candidly, a company like BD, uh, again, a great company, wasn't calling on a specialty lab and calling on doctors down in the cath lab. They were talking to central supply or purchasing. Two different call points, different products, different needs. Mm -hmm. And uh, we identified that, and, uh, you know, it's been kind of, um, you know, I don't want to say straight up from there because, you know, but, I mean, we built a large business just by meeting customers' needs and actually being where they are. You know, uh, I think uh, when I think about the guy that said that I was crazy, um, you know, for thinking about this, the guy had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever about market and the opportunity. Um, he just didn't understand it. Right. What, I mean, what led you to, to have that be your flagship product? <laughs> yeah, real simple. 
Um, it was a low cost of entry because we were going to build one product. It was going to cost us maybe two or three hundred thousand dollars to build the tools. We had three or four employees, so it was the only thing I could afford. Right. You know, I had to, I, I had that's all I could afford. So it, it was a real easy decision. <laughs> well, apparently the right decision. Uh, well, as it all turns out, yes. Was there a moment uh, that you sort of knew, hey, this is going to work? You know, I, I get asked that, and I have to tell you, I'm sitting in our corporate offices here, and I'm looking out over our campus, which is about 70 acres. And, um, you know, we've had this property now, uh, and I'm looking across the street to 12 acres that are vacant and another six acres just adjacent, 18, 20 acres now total there. And we bought all this ground 25 years ago. Hmm. So within the first two or three years of the business, we had always had a vision of building a company that had had a clinic, you know, for our employees, which we have, by the way, our own medical clinic and our own doctors, you know, that will have our own kind of university setting, who will have a dental, who will have, uh, we don't have all these things, but we have, we have some of them. And we had a vision of all of this from the beginning. I paid $10,000 an acre for the property that I'm sitting on today that cost 300000 or to $400,000 an acre, and we did this 25 years ago. So, yeah, we kind of, you know, someone said, well, did you think it would be like this? And the answer is, yeah, we did. Now, we planned for it. I still have the model of the campus that, you know, we had built. We had buildings laid out on it. I still have it here. We did it 25 years ago, and, you know, we're still working on the business plan we wrote 25 years ago. Now, that's in 1990 you purchased that, and you, you founded, the company's officially founded in 87, right? Yeah, in September. So it was almost 88, and, uh, yeah, we bought this property and, and uh, built this campus out, and it's one of the most, I mean, people come here, and they're astounded by its beauty, its grandeur, and the care. I mean, this place is, is, and I want to thank my staff and the people who do the work here. It's a beautiful, beautiful edifice. I mean, this whole campus um, is, is just stunning. Now, I know your CFO is a co-founder, but, I mean, did you, I, I can't imagine that, I mean, did you have to convince him to use that kind of cash flow to purchase that much real estate? Or um, I have to do more convincing today than I did back then <laughs> uh, because I owned all the shares. <laughs> uh, uh, so it was real easy to convince him, like, this is what we're going to do. Um, I think uh, one of the things, uh, whenever you get a larger organization, you have to, there's a lot of selling, there's a lot of persuasion, there's a lot of things to make sure people are in line. And, 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 and I think, uh, rightfully so, there's also a lot of pushback and a lot of challenge. And, and since I believe that truth fears no trial, you, you, uh, you know, sometimes I'm wrong and, and, uh, or sometimes I'll reconsider. And, uh, and you have to have that in any organization. So, um, yeah, I think uh, as time went on, it requires more and more thinking at the beginning less. Did you have to learn that? And, and, and how hard of an adaption was that for you since you founded the company and, you, like you said, you were the majority owner? Yeah, I, well, you know, I think uh, I think this all goes back to that military experience. Um, you know, when you have a mission and you have a team of people, whether it be a platoon or an A team um, um, or a company, uh, you know, you have to you have to be able to have a uh, give out clear and concise battle orders, and that is here's the mission, um, here's the objective, um, and here's how we're going to do it. Here's how we're going to communicate. Here's how we're going to get extracted. Um, and, uh, you know, as long as th those things, people will follow you to the ends of the earth. If you look out for their best interest, 
you keep them informed and you make sure that you meet their basic needs of safety and you feed them and you care for people. I think that's what we've tried to do here. And is it, you know, I think it's something that was relatively intuitive um, is, you know, if you take care of your, you know, what's the old saying? If you give them what they want, they'll give you what you want. And you take care of those basic needs and you look after them and you're sincere about it. Um, people will look after you. So, uh, uh, yeah, I guess you learn that, but, um, you, you, you know, at least in my case, I learned it pretty early, and I needed to. I mean, I don't think you could do this. I, I often think about this, Brian. I think about, you know, why in the world me? How, how did I get to do this? Why was I chosen to do this? And by the way, uh, you know, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I've never had any doubt that this was my life's work. Once you know that, um, it kind of takes all the noise out of the whole equation. Hmm. I, I was going to ask what sort of personal principles have guided you and, and, and what business principles have guided you, but I think you've, you've touched on that a little bit. Um, but did, was there something that... I, and I, yeah, I think they're one of the same. I, I don't, you know, I mean, you can't be one guy in the boardroom and another guy in your private life. You have to be consistent in those values. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a perfect man by any means. I've made a lot of mistakes in life, but I mean, I, I think personal and business, and by that I don't mean that someone has to think or go to church or I go to church or do the things I do or, or, I, or I don't do. But I think, you know, um, honesty, um, being straightforward, uh, being upfront with your employees, um, uh, looking after their needs, concerned about them. I mean, you know, uh, you, you, things even like our cafeteria. You know, I eat in the cafeteria every day. And, um, you know, the, the food, the quality, um, I sit there and eat with them. You know, uh, um, you know, Things that, you know, how would you want to be treated? Right. Um, you know, we, we recently put some round tables in the cafeteria that can hold six or eight people instead of square tables that have four. Well, it's a big deal. They love it. And why? Because they're friends. They're teams. They want to sit together. Um, and there's always, you know, so if you look at those things, and I'm installing now some new chargers in the cafeteria so they can charge their, their cell phones. You know, they take a break. Um, you know, it, it's the little things that make a difference. Or fade days, you know, whenever there's a holiday or there's a Monday holiday, we're working on Friday, you know, by usually by 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock, we shut the business down and send people home. Right. You know, uh, Halloween comes to mind. You know, we grow pumpkins and give our employees the pumpkins out of the fields that are vacant that we own, but that we, that we farm it. But at 3 o'clock on October 31st, uh, um, you know, people go home so they can be with their family. And the reason that came about was years and years ago, I was going home to be with my family, and I thought, wait a second, I'm leaving, these people are staying here, that's just not the right thing to do. Walk back in, I said, you know, uh, if you're out of the building in the next 15 minutes, um, you, 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 we'll pay you, by the way, mm -hmm. we'll pay you, we're still going to pay you for leaving, uh, but please go home and, and do that. And I got back in my car, and I said, okay, now I can do this and I can live with this, um, but I can't put myself above anybody else. And I think that's another really critical issue in leadership, whether it be in the military, um, you cannot put yourself ahead of anybody, and if you do that, your your ability to effectively lead is substantially diminished, if not completely. Right. I'd like to just jump back really quickly in terms of how you uh, started the company in terms of funding. Did you raise venture capital dollars, or was this a bootstrapped sort of? Yeah, no, it was a bootstrap. I took everything I had. Um, um, you know, all my stock in Utah Medical, um, and I converted it into Merit stock and put every penny into this business. 
Then I went out and raised privately by myself two million dollars um, with private, you know, essentially what they call today angel investors. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then we ended up taking the company public pretty early on, within the first three years or so. I think in '91, so we're less than you know we're just four years old. And our our gross proceeds from our public offering were two uh, 2.4 million dollars was the gross. I think we netted one eight or one nine out of it. That was it hmm. for almost uh, 20, 22 or 23 years. We went back to the equity markets about five years ago and raised 93 million dollars. But other than that, uh, we've done it the old-fashioned way. We worked hard, we made the money, and we reinvested it. Uh, was there, uh, in terms of the sort of life cycle of the company, um, was there a product that you would say helped really kind of scale you fast, or was there an acquisition that you did that helped scale you fast? Um, I think in terms of a product that right after we did the control syringe, the next product for us was a digital inflation device. And as I mentioned earlier, the PGCA market was emerging. And even though we were competing with the likes of Medtronic and Boston Scientific and Abbott and at that time uh, Guidant and others, uh, Merit today is the world leader in inflation devices. So uh, these are uh, devices, these specialty syringes that we talked about that can go up to 40 atmospheres and that you're using to either do an esophageal balloon, a PTCA balloon, um, either uh, on the coronary side or the peripheral side. And uh, today we command about a 50% market share against all these big companies. And how have we done that? Well, um, we have, I think, brought to marketplace, I think, seven or eight systems. They can be digital. Uh, they can be self-contained digital. They can be analog. They have various pressure ranges, various sizes. And our competitors just simply haven't done that. They have not, in most cases, continued to innovate. They're using products that they developed 25 years ago, and we just released our most recent uh, inflation device. Um, we've done two in the last, I think, three years, and we have another new Bluetooth um, digital system that we hope to have on the uh, market early next year. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you're still as bullish on MedTech as you were, you know, 30 years ago. I think uh, it's a good question. Um, the Markets today, and I, I was talking with a, um, um, some folks about an hour ago, and, and I was asked a question, it was just a general conversation, you know, kind of what's the threshold today? Um, you know, it's almost $100 million uh, if you want to have a sales force and research and development and manufacturing facilities. Um, back in our day, you know, we could start with a single product, but regulations, um, the length of time even for registrations of 510Ks, uh, I mean, I, for, as an example, Brian, I wrote the first five, five, ten case for the company, hmm. and I'm just a regular guy. I'm not an engineer. I'm not a you know biochemist or bioengineer. I wrote them and submitted them and got them cleared. Today, I have probably 50 or 60 regulatory officers working at Merit, covering the world for renewals, and each country has their own regulatory um, type of thing, and it, it's it's very, very, very difficult today. Medical device tax. Um, you know, you know, you know, one size fits all, right? But you know, whether you get 90% gross margins or 45% gross margins, you're going to pay that 2.3%. Um, you know, uh, almost walking into a hospital, you're going to have somewhere between five and seven percent, whether it be the device tax or GPOs or rep check. That's off the top before you even walk in a hospital. We didn't have those things when we started the company. 
And so I'm, um, I think there are tons of ideas and tons of things um, um, and products uh, and, and emerging markets. So I'm optimistic on that side, but I would not want to be um, a startup company um, in this environment. It would be very, very difficult, and you certainly couldn't do it with a control syringe. And we're talking about a hundred million threshold for just to achieve some sort of profitability, or, or yeah, or yeah. Or I mean, so, you know, you get a fifty or sixty percent gross margin, you know, and then you've got to have you got to sell it, you know, you've got to have the R and D to go into it. Um, you've got all those expenses that are going, and there are a lot of companies out there, but you know, when they're starting up, they're going to lose money for several years, and then they're going to have to go out and raise twenty to fifty million, maybe a hundred million dollars just in venture capital. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, I'm just saying that environment today, um, which I think has been just um, hammered with regulations and bureaucracy, um, uh, it, it's just a fact of life and, and you have to adapt to it. There's, you, you know, there's no sense complaining about it. And I think that's another issue about business is uh, you have to be continually, not only innovating, but you have to be continually adapting to your environment. I, I would say those are the same kinds of things we learned in the military. You you better be able to adapt quickly, uh, you better be able to move quickly or you're going to get shot. Right. Um, I like the quote you gave a publication a couple of years back when you said billions of dollars of revenue have been created by doing things people said we couldn't do. And I'm wondering what are people telling you you can't do today? Yeah. <laughs> and, and these are things that I, that I think about. Um, you know, we've never been sellers, and by that I mean we weren't looking for a flip or trying to be serial entrepreneurs. We've always been willing, and my job is to be to, uh, to uh, fulfill my fiduciary responsibility to shareholders. But at the same time, uh, why can't this be the next Bard? Why can't this be the next Medtronics? Uh, I don't see any reason why it can't be. Uh, I think it takes vision and hard work, and you have to make right decisions, but... Um, you know, we would have left a lot of money on the table, um, and um, I think, you know, we've, like I said, done it the old-fashioned way, but I don't see any reason why this can't be a $3 billion company um, in my lifetime. And, uh, and then, uh, you know, we're starting to develop a team of, of uh, younger uh, um, guys and gals that uh, we hope to be able to turn the company over to as time progresses and as that becomes necessary. So. I just don't, I just never believed, and I don't like to be restricted. Right. I don't like to be told what to do, and I don't like to be told um, how to do it. And uh, so that's kind of that, um, I, I guess, that little bit of that northeastern U.S. Uh, um, and some of that Greek heritage coming into play. Sure. Well, I mean, you could join another one of your, you know, Greek compatriots, Peter Nicholas, still at the helm of a, you know, $8 billion company someday. Yep. Yeah, I, and uh, you know, they've, they've had their ups and downs, but it's a great company. Yeah, it's a great company. So I, I imagine that there's no, if you're buying property three years in and you have a, you're still working on your business plan. You're not looking to flip this. This is a, this is a, your your plan to grow this to three billion. What do you think it takes to get there? Um, I think it's going to take um, new technologies, and, and by that I mean new platforms. Mm -hmm. um, I think, um, and this is something we're already doing, so there's going to take new platforms. As one of those might be interventional neural ra uh, radiology. Um, it's going to be um, new platforms in terms of technology. And by that, I mean 
you know, Merritt is now developing, and we disclosed this last year, um, now working on some vascular stents. Now, that being said, if these aren't coronary stents, but these are vascular stents in markets that we think that are underserved that the big guys don't have an interest in, and we think that, that there's some good places um, to, to be involved in, in that market. Um, uh, so uh, Merit is also in the endoscopy business where we make non-vascular stents for the esophagus and for the biliary and for the, uh, uh, the pulmonary uh, bronchial tracheal market. So uh, you, you broaden your technology, you broaden your footprint um, of, uh, geographically, and as you know, um, you know almost half, 40, 45% of Merit's revenues uh, come from the international market. So I think it's a combination of those uh, three items. And there are uh, um, the possibilities of some bolt-ons and maybe even some larger acquisitions mm -hmm. um, at those same call points and, and uh, that sort of thing as well. So right. there's, I think, um, a combination of new products internally, um, geographic, bolt-ons, and the broadening of the technology base. So there's, there's plenty of ways to do that. In the acquisitions that you've made at Merit, I mean, is there things that you've learned about successfully integrating com companies into your, I mean, clearly Merit has a specific uh, value set, way of doing things. Uh, is there lessons you've learned? Yeah, well, yeah, well, there are a lot of lessons. Um, some of them learned uh, um, uh, by making a mistake. Uh, some of them, as an example, we've done a lot of single product bolt-ons um, that has been very successful, like our snare products. Um, we've done some, you know, that haven't been successful, that have had to be impaired. We were wrong. We've done, we did Biosphere, which is just down the street there in Rockland. Mm -hmm. um, that was a great acquisition. It was our largest acquisition that we'd ever done up to about, uh, you know, three years ago. It was the biggest thing we'd ever done. It was, I think, $93 million. But it was in the embolic area. And the thing that was nice and how it fit with our products is that we have the delivery systems, the microcatheters, the vascular access, and, and it was at our same call point. Uh, we did Thomas Medical. Um, and, you know, we, we started out Thomas a little rough. Um, you know, it was basically products for electrophysiology and, and, and uh, CRM, cardiac rhythm management business. And uh, a big customer, OEM customer, um, uh, left right after we bought the thing. And we should have done more due diligence. That being said, I love the products. I love the area, and um, and uh, you know we we turned it very quickly and got it back on you know within a year. Um, so um, you know uh, you learn that people are critical. Uh, you learn um, to make sure that in your analysis of the products and how you present it to shareholders that you present a vision, but you also have to deliver. You just can't tell you know stories. You have to you, know, you have to make it happen. And I think that that's another, I think, attribute of merit is we don't give up. Mm. So, I mean, we, um, you know, we, uh, Thomas Medical, we, what I call them, what we've done to all the other companies, we call it Meritizer. And they truly become part of the merit family. We invest. We're not just there to, uh, you know, take all the cash out we can and let the technology die. Um, they become a living, breathing part of our business. And whether it be in, Texas, where we bought a Malincroft catheter facility, you know, 18 years ago, um, uh, that was doing eight million dollars in business, and would now in which we're doing almost a hundred million dollars in business. Just built them a new facility, invested heavily, broadened their technology base, but we had the right people and the right technology and something we needed for growth, and we did that. 
Um, uh, we take a look at Alveolus, which was this non-vascular stent company doing $6 million. This is uh, five or six years ago. They're going to do $20 million. It's one of the fastest growing areas of our business this year. I think that we'll be ramping at 20 or 25% growth in that division by the end of the year mm. for some new product introductions that, uh, that um, have uh, just now are releasing. I think we're going to see substantial acceleration of growth. So, um, you know, I think all in all, we've got a pretty good job. Uh, we've made a few mistakes, but, but not very many. Absolutely. And certainly our successes have far outweighed our mistakes. Well, it would certainly appear so, for sure, judging by the financial results and, and the, your longevity in the market and, and, and your ability to stand up against some very, very large competitors. Um, I, you know, we usually close all interviews asking, is there something that we didn't ask that you wanted to add? Well, no, I mean, I think, it, I, you know, I always appreciate, you know, it's all about numbers, you know, in terms of our shareholders. It's nice that, that we can have a few minutes to talk, um, you know, about, you know, how we got started, our core values. Uh, but, but at the end of the day, uh, we talked about our, CF, our CFO and sitting in the room with me, I have a couple of my business partners sitting here, and, and uh, it's all about people. It's all about, you know, providing that vision and, and being truthful and honest and straightforward and keeping them involved, and this business has been built because I had some ideas. Um, um, I couldn't get anybody else to hire me, so I had to create a company so I could get a job. Uh, but but I, I've just got great people. In fact, I always say this, and, and it, it, it's true. Um, this is like having a special forces um, division or brigades. Everybody here um, has that fire in their eyes and in their belly, and they work hard. And um, I look after them, and they look after me. And uh, I think that's it, the single most important issue. We've had some people recently come from other companies, and I, I won't mention their names, but they just say it's so refreshing to be here and to you, know, you come talk to us, you share with us. I mean, as an example, next week I've got a group of about 20 of our business leaders coming from around the world just to sit down and, and have a chit-chat. How are we doing? What should we be doing? What am, what am I not hearing? Um, and, and by the way, I have, I have a, a, a reason to bring them here. I have a bunch of things to show them, some ideas, and I'd like their input. I value their, their input. Um, you just can't do all this stuff. You have to be decisive. You can't go around and take a, a vote. You know, someone's got to lead. And I think that, um, that that's been a huge part of our success is we're decisive, we look after our people, and we have great folks here, and we built this powerful, um, energetic uh, company that is fun to come to every day. Every single day, I can't wait to get here. Um, and although I love to go home to my family, um, uh, I can't wait to get back as well. Well, thank you so much. It's been an incredibly enlightening interview. I, I really appreciate you taking the time, and I wish you the best of luck. Well, we're, well thank you, and, and we hope that we can have an opportunity and maybe other forums to discuss the company and maybe financials or products, but I, I would be glad. I've appreciated your questions and, and your courtesy. Thank you. All right.